Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode, we'll be talking all about the 41st annual Toronto International Film Festival, an 11-day cavalcade of movie screenings, panel discussions, and celebrity sightings, which just wrapped up last week. This year's festival was host to almost 300 feature films from over 80 different countries around the world, and, as it does every year, offered film critics, industry professionals, and general audience members a sneak peek into the next few months in art house and mainstream cinema. I was very fortunate to be able to attend this year's festival alongside Arnold Gorlick of Madison Art Cinemas, and so on today's episode, the two of us will be sharing some of our favorite movies, biggest disappointments, and key takeaways from Toronto. For the second segment of today's show, we'll be playing a short interview I did while up in Toronto with Rob Lewinsky, the owner of Brielle Cinemas. Rob is a film buyer, which means that his company works with dozens of small movie theaters, including Arnold's, around the country to help them figure out which films they should bring to their screens over the course of a given year. But first, I'm very happy to welcome back to the studio Arnold Gorlick. Arnold is the owner and operator of the Madison Art Cinemas, a two-screen movie theater in Madison, Connecticut, that, from its sound system to its carefully curated Sunday Cinema Club, consistently offers some of the best movie-going experiences in the state. Arnold, welcome back to Deep Focus. It's a pleasure to have you on. I'm honored to be here with you, Tom. And it's good to see you back from Toronto. Have you acclimated well back to the, the Northeast after your travels? Yeah, it, it's still with me. It's, it stays, it stays yeah. with me for weeks after. So I, I told you right before the show started that a quote I wanted to run by you that we got in last year's episode about TIFF was you described the Toronto Film Fest as exhilarating and exhausting. Do those two adjectives apply to your experience in 2016 as well? The exhilaration is accurate. It was more exhausting for me this year because I was burdened with having to do work for the theater and to take myself out of the festival and therefore cram certain things in. So that made it more exhausting for me this year. As a result, I only saw something like 24 and a half movies instead of my usual 30 to 34 in eight days. And as someone who saw 24 movies in six days, let me tell you, that is no mean feat just to do four a day. So right. to, to think that that is a minimum of your, or that is kind of a lower threshold, that's pretty impressive. But I imagine that's a compromise that you have to make really whenever you travel, but especially when you go to a film festival as the owner and operator of Madison Art Cinemas, are, are, are you always staying up late into the you know early morning responding to various Not concerns? Not necessarily. I had a special event which needed lots of attention that was happening upon my return. And I also, just mundane stuff, had a payroll and work schedule to do. And uh, unfortunately, it fell while I was... Sometimes it doesn't fall. It's every two weeks when I'm at Toronto. But I learned a lesson. Next year, I'll postpone pay for one week with their, my helps, with the employee's permission. I'm, I'm interested in, in today's episode and talking about our experiences up at the fest, you know, the, the schedule and the people that we spoke with. But the most important thing are the movies themselves that, you know, we go up there to watch the movies, to talk about the movies. So let's, let's start there. Uh, we have a couple of different categories that we wanted to cover, but the first are standouts. So maybe we'll go, you know, back and forth over, you know, maybe we'll each pick two or three Should I list all movies. my standouts? Let's, how about, I mean, let's there, are, pick... there are only like six that I put as standouts and the rest are the ones that I liked. Give, give, me the, give me the first standout and tell me a bit about what it's about and, and why you chose it for this list. Okay. The movie is Lion. It's distributed by the uh, Weinstein Company. It'll be available in theaters at Christmas time. And uh, I look forward to playing that. Sometimes I don't play simultaneously with everybody else. Sometimes we play exclusively. But no matter 
who's playing this movie, I'm going to play it. This is no tricks in this movie, though it is well shot, well filmed, well edited. It is uh, brilliantly written. It's a, a powerful and poignant story, and it's a true story of a little boy in India who's very attached to his brother and his mother, who seems to be a single mom, living in poverty. And the, boy, the older brother uh, gets work wherever he can get it. The little boy wants to follow him. Against his mother's wishes, he allows the little boy to follow him. They take a train where he's going to have his work. He asks the little boy, uh, Saru, to remain on a bench waiting for him, and he never comes back. This really happened. There's this train in the station. Saru gets on the train and doesn't realize it's a decommissioned train, and it's all locked up and goes for 1,200 miles to Calcutta, and he can't even identify the village that he came from and didn't know where he was. No support, a five-year-old boy in Calcutta on his own, and what happens from that moment? It's a great story. Now, we, I, unfortunately, this is one of my regrets that I didn't get to see Lion, but I spoke with you soon after you saw it, and your initial impression, and it sounds like that's true today too, is that it's, there, it's relatively you know, unadorned, straightforward, but just masterful storytelling. This isn't a movie with a lot of, kind of tricks up its sleeves or it doesn't wow you with kind of its technical virtuosity, but this is the kind of fundamental quality of a good movie. It's a story well told. Yeah, what's amazing to me is that this is a debut uh, film for Garth Davies. I think he did videos or something like that, so maybe it's not fair. Maybe they do get really their training well with music videos and so on and so forth, if that's how he began. But yeah, um, ultimately, hopefully for me at least and for others, it's the power of storytelling that we're looking at the film. Special effects are important when it augments the story, but special effects for themselves, themselves means nothing to me. And this is the power of storytelling. It's authenticity in telling it, and it's well told. And so this is a first-time filmmaker, Garth Davies. Garth Davies, saying, yes. But a familiar face at the center of the story, a few familiar faces, one being Dev Patel. Correct. From Slumdog Millionaire. And then, I, I didn't look oh, at the other uh, but there are a few Kidman. Nicole Kidman as well, right? So I imagine... And I don't want to say Nicole Kidman's role, because it then it's a spoiler. Ah, okay. <laughs> even to say what happens beyond that moment. But Dev Patel, you found his, his performance... Yeah, it's the most mature performance since I've been watching him since uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Later on, uh, the Marigold Hotel series, the uh, duo, and uh, the man who knew Infinity. This is his most complex, and he's turned more into a man. He's become a big guy physically hmm. as well, you could see. Well, then, in, in our volley of standout films, I'm going to offer my first film before we get to your second and that is a movie that i'm not sure that you actually saw so i'd be interested to hear your response is moonlight one i of the did see it you saw it wonderful so moonlight is the second feature film by director barry jenkins coming after his 2008 debut medicine for melancholy this is another beautifully told movie a small movie about it's three chapters in the life of a young gay black man growing up in miami florida and each of these chapters kind of follows one of the the few moments in this youth's life in which the kind of double consciousness of his existence is reconciled. And by double consciousness, I mean, as a gay man, as a black man, this character is always presented with the problem of living two lives, one for himself and one for everyone around him. And each of these chapters, the, the pivot of each of the chapters is that rare moment of serenity, of kind of tranquility, when, um, when vulnerability does not lead to abuse, 
but actually leads to an authentic connection. And so when those two lives merge, when the kind of sensitive, aware kid who's quite soft-spoken finally connects with someone, you know, a rare moment in his life, that is what each of these chapters pivots around. And that moment of connection is always told somewhere in the moonlight, somewhere in the safety of the moonlight and the oddness of the moonlight. It's a phenomenally textured movie. And movies, you know, we don't necessarily think of the tactile, you know, response to a movie. But here you can feel every grain of sand through his hands. You can feel the ocean breeze on his face, the sound of the water kind of lapping at his body. This movie really made me feel something. And and it's especially important for a character who is so acutely aware of his surroundings where each one of the details that makes up his environment uh, is of almost life or death importance for us, the audience, to feel those sensations at the same time as watching him kind of work through them. I found it a phenomenal accomplishment for a second-time filmmaker. Part part of that is accomplished through the camera. We get a lot of 360 moves where the camera is kind of spinning in a circular fashion around the character, and we see every single thing. You know, it's, it encompasses every single detail around him. And we also get a lot of tracking shots where we're following from behind in a somewhat kind of uneasy and anticipatory way. But for the most part, this movie just beautifully communicates what it's like to live in between two lives and those rare moments when those lives intersect. Uh, as so, I, I, don't, I haven't had a chance to talk with you about Moonlight yet, but what, what was your response, Arnold? Uh, I too listed it as one of my favorites. It's a very powerful film. It's, um, it's one that obviates our need to be connected, but this one through the African-American experience particularly. And we get an insight and a humanized look at a poor African community outside of Miami. We're not seeing it in the South Beach area. There's no neon lights or anything like that. I'm someone who hates excessive soundtracks, uh, music in a movie to instruct us how we should feel. And even movies that I love, Lion is not one of them. Like I really liked uh, a United Kingdom, but I kept wondering why it had to instruct me how to feel at certain points when I was feeling it just by what was happening on the screen. But this soundtrack is different because it's um, it's overlaid on nonverbal events, and it 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 punctuates and augments what we're seeing so perfectly well without distracting it, distracting us for or instructing us how to feel. It, it's a powerful movie, and uh, I loved it, and I loved the protagonist, uh, Chiron. I just felt such compassion for him. And um, though, I don't know, I know that he had, he spoke of uh, a gay experience in his early life that we witness uh, with a friend of his, but he said, you're the only man I ever did that with, and it was one time. So it was not clear to me that he had fully resolved what his sexual identity is, and he may have been equally attracted to women. I don't know, he sure grew up to be a macho guy, from a wimpy kid. Right, we should say that. So in each of these three chapters, we see Chiron at age 10, 17-ish, and then around early 30s. And in the first chapter, he's a young boy caught between two codependent families, one, a loving but narcissistic mother with a serious drug addiction, and then the other, the you know paternalistic figure, kind of benevolent, who is also the drug dealer who enables his mom's addiction. Correct. In the second, we see him as a young you know teenager, brooding and confused and angry over what makes him different from his fellow students and what leads to all the bullying. And then third, we see him as a hardened Atlanta drug dealer, right? He has become the father figure that we see in, in the first chapter. And, and you're right, he is... I mean, that's definitely part of the tragedy of this story that he winds up, you know, so internalizing the kind of masculine normative demands around him that the only way for him to compensate for uh, what makes him soft, what makes him vulnerable to his peers, 
uh, is to go way in the other direction, right? He becomes the hardest guy on the street. He becomes the the gangster and the drug dealer. And again, what's so beautiful about the chapter, the third chapter, is that we see him. You know, we get enough context to understand that his life in Atlanta is a difficult one. But the moment of connection is the focus of that third chapter, right. right? This beautiful diner sequence in which he talks with the only man who who ever touched him or ever had a sexual encounter with. So, Another bit of texture that added power to the movie was I've never seen each successive age so well cast where really the young boy going to the adolescent, going to the adult, didn't look like a completely different actor. You said, wow, that really looks like... Chiron growing up. Right. Love and Mercy like. was a movie I liked a lot last year, but I always well, I, found I'm sorry. Love and Mercy was oh, a movie yes. I liked a lot last year, but I always found it difficult to reconcile Paul Dano becoming John Cusack. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. in two different ages of Brian yes. Wilson. So you're right. That was, you know, a subtle uh, accomplishment of this movie. So we've got Moonlight and Lion thus far. Tell me about another movie you really enjoyed, Arnold. France, and that's not the country. It's the German name, F R A N T Z. It's directed by Francois Ozan. Um, uh, I was at the premiere screening with the director there. It was quite exciting. Um, he directed Potiche, which means trophy wife, swimming pool. It stars an actress I don't know, Paula Beer and Pierre Niney. And again, it's, to talk too much about this movie is a spoiler, but we'll just say this. It's the immediate aftermath of World War One. It's set in Germany, where a woman's fiancé had been killed on the French front, and she's he's German. And he's, she's living with his parents. And she goes to a grave every day, his grave, to place flowers. And one day arrives and sees a man she doesn't know, has never seen before, placing flowers on the grave. And the movie takes off from that. It's just great in showing how we perceive others, how we generalize, and how we, uh, how we generalize it. Reminded me today is how Germans look at French, all with this way, all with that way, and so on, and what's being in the smear that's going on today in public politics. But it, it's a wonderful individual story as well. I was touched deeply. I Again, this is another regret of mine. I, I know you strongly recommended France during the festival, but I wound up missing it. But I, I heard that this is a, a longer movie, or at least a very patiently unfolding one. Did you find the, the pacing of it uh a distraction, satisfactory in any way, affecting Utterly your experience? Utterly satisfactory. I mean, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Tree of Wooden Clogs or Fanny and Alexander, which had a pace, a dirge-like pace throughout the whole thing. And yet, three hours later, I was sorry it ended. So slow pace doesn't mean boring. It's this savors moments, has us appreciate, gives us some visceral feeling of what's happening in the internal lives of these people and their great atmospherics in it. No tricks either, except the only thing is some shots are made in black and white, some in color, and some in washed-out color. I didn't get the state to ask Francois or to hear. I know somebody would ask that. Francois Ozan speak to that. Who knows? Maybe one day we'll get him to come to the theater when the movie opens because I already booked it for March. <laughs> that, that is, and who is distributing that one? Music yeah. Box. Wonderful company. We're opening a movie of theirs on October 14th based on the international bestseller Man Called Uwe. Great. 
that is definitely one that I look forward to catching up with. My my second pick, I think, is a one that you missed, but you may be opening uh, come Christmas time, and that is Jackie by Pablo Lorraine. Yes. So this is a a biopic of sorts about Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy, and it takes place really entirely in the three days between the assassination of JFK on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, and the funeral procession that she was kind of instrumental in planning a few days later. What makes this movie so exceptional? Um, on top of a, a great performance, a, uh, a very subtle performance from Natalie Portman as Jackie Kennedy, is the way that it explores uh, the first lady as a woman who contains multitudes. This is an incredibly complex person whose identity has been reduced over the course of her life, and especially her public life, to one of kind of shallowness, of frivolity, of being, you know, associated with JFK, but being someone who is kind of dismissed because of various kind of sexist stereotypes as being not as serious, not as consequential as her husband, the president. And so one kind of crisis, one identity crisis, a serious one that she undergoes after the assassination and before the funeral procession is who who is she now that her husband is dead, now that this man who has so marked who she is in the public eye, who is Jackie Kennedy um, without JFK? And she is a a woman who is embarrassed and very angry by her husband's infidelities, but very determined to secure a legacy for him, for his presidency, and for herself, future generations. She's a woman who is very concerned about tradition and history and bringing culture and a sense of taste to the White House, again, battling that constant accusation of frivolity. And she is someone who is, you know, she is a, a mother. She is someone who is trying to protect her children while at the same time using them to achieve as, as prominent in a place, but also as well-respected a place in the public eye as possible. And the way that Natalie Portman and Pablo Lorraine through merciless uh, close-ups, uh, I mean, Natalie Portman is certainly a, a very attractive actress, so it's not like the camera is being unkind to her and getting right up close in her face, but the way that we are f- so focused on the internality of this character uh, over the course of an hour and a half is an incredible achievement and a, and a very a, a detailed one and a very complicated one because this is an exploration as much of what does it mean to be a woman, what does it mean to be a human being as it is what does it mean to be the first lady of the United States. So Jackie is one that I was I was very surprised by. So I didn't go in with high expectations. I thought I don't know if I need a biopic of uh, of the first lady, but it was one that brought a lot of you know, complicated uh, nuance to it. So I know Jackie is one that you've been approached by the distributor for, for potential yes. playing at Well, at it Madison. didn't have a distributor going in. Uh, and by the way, this is one of them on my list of the ones I regret not having seen. Having looked at the trailer, I was struck how well Natalie Portman um, uh, replicated Jackie Kennedy with the aspiration in her voice, the breathlessness of the whole thing and her body language was perfect. But what's really interesting to me about this movie is that very same director had another picture, another movie in uh, the festival called Neruda, based on the escape from Chile of uh, uh, Pablo Neruda in the 40s when communism was outlawed and he was pursued and he was an avowed communist at the time. And... This is by the same director also did the movie from Chile called No, which we played, which is where an entire political campaign, I believe during the Pinochet era, had to run an entire campaign on subtext, (laughs) which was well done. 
this is a, a director to be looked at. Although Neruda was a bit of a disappointment for you, or maybe you went in with too it high was, expectations? Uh, maybe it's because if it was accurate, first of all, this is fictionalized. There was no individual detective following him, where uh, kind of like the fugitive, where they, they gave each other identity. But it's a fictionalized version of the whole thing. That having been said, there was such a disjuncture between the person and the persona that, because um, Pablo Neruda is one of my heroes. And uh, I said, was he really, was he really going to crude brothels like that all the time while being with his wife? Was he really, was there that much of a disjunction? I don't mind that he philandered or was unfaithful, but it showed two extreme sides of him. Mm. And of course, during this period when he was on the run, he wrote his most, uh, his richest poetry. Give me one more pick of a standout film from, uh, we're gonna, we'll talk about plenty more, but of the, you know, the ones that you really want to highlight for, uh, for listeners after your trip to Toronto. Well, I'm going to choose one, one of these three because the ones that would stand out to me was I Am Not Your Negro by Raoul Peck, The Journey by Nick Ham about the Irish uh, peace process, and Nocturnal Animal, Animals by Tom Ford. But let's go with a movie that no one's going to see until it comes to PBS or Netflix. It's called I Am Not Your Negro. And it's based on James Baldwin's manuscripts of his last and unfinished book, Remember This House, where he accounts, gives an account of his relationships, not just his personal ones, but the relationships of people like Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, and so on, on many people who were lost uh, during the civil rights movement. The movie was breathtaking to me because I had forgotten viscerally how brilliant James Baldwin was and how well he thought on his feet, how articulate he was, and he could be sitting in the presence of towering intellects and not have the slightest loss for words or hesitation in his sentence in talking about ideas. He never made ad hominem remarks whatsoever, but it was all derived from the manuscripts. Now, when we didn't see James Baldwin speaking specifically, um, Samuel L. Jackson did the voice of James Baldwin, but you wouldn't have known it because it's in the hushed voice of James Baldwin and did a good job. And of course, they also augmented it by printing the dialogue on the screen while he was saying it. Then it would go and it made such incredible connections between the civil rights era and today. This is a great movie. Not everybody's going to be interested in it. It's all black and white. It's a documentary. Well done. And and I have to be honest, it's not specific especially cinematic. You can watch this on television. So I thought, well, this will be perfect for NPR, uh, for PBS, rather. The, uh, I'm, I'm always grateful for an opportunity for more people to think about the legacy of James Baldwin because you're right, to, and also to be able to see him and listen to him speak, right? Because he had such a, an authoritative and powerful way of presenting himself. So um, that is one that I look forward to catching up with. And it's, I don't think it's too big a step to go to my the third movie I want to highlight, which was, I believe, the first movie that you saw of the festival, and that's Loving by Jeff Nichols. Yes. Uh, so this tells the story of the couple, the interracial couple at the center of the 1967 court case, I believe that's the year, from Virginia, that in which the Supreme Court outlawed all uh, anti-miscegenation laws. So laws around the country that said that white people and black people could not uh, be bound by marriage. And so Joel Edgerton and Ruth Nega play uh, Richard Loving and Mildred Jeter, I believe is her name, and then Mildred Loving, uh, as a couple 
profoundly and simply in love with one another. And they are from a rural area of Virginia. They elope to Washington, D.C. to get married. And upon returning to their home, they suffer all of the indignities and humiliations and inconveniences of being, you know, of living against the law. They try to live elsewhere in D.C., but inevitably their home, their family, their friends are in Virginia. And so they, I don't want to give away too much about the movie, but it is a, a goal, of the, a requirement of theirs in order to live meaningful lives, to, to return to their home, to go back to Virginia. And this movie, part of what so endeared it to me and, and I found striking was that it was not a kind of big, bombastic courtroom drama, which wouldn't have been bad, but it was what I would have expected with plenty of, you know, articulate, well-heeled defenses um, and arguments against the uh, immorality of racist legislation, which I think is so, you know, important for people to be on that stand making that case. Um, But what this movie is much more interested in is the day-to-day life of a couple in love with one another who simply cannot, I mean, it's a love story. It's a a couple that cannot be together for the most arbitrary and therefore painful of reasons. And the way that this movie takes its time to to document what it's like to live under that type of uh, oppression is, I, I found beautiful. And Jeff Nichols is a filmmaker who did shotgun stories, Take Shelter, uh, Mud, and Midnight Special. He is someone who really knows how to linger on the silences between characters, but make those meaningful. There's not necessarily a lot of kind of chatting or vociferous dialogue between the two. These are two who are so comfortable in in one another's presence. And to see them torn apart and torn from their families, uh, I found a a devastating and, and very moving story to tell. This was the first movie of the festival you saw. What, what was your impression and how is Loving stuck with you, Arnold? Well, it's the power of the... Uh cruel arbitrariness uh, arbitrariness of identifying people by the color of their skin and then uh dehumanizing them from uh from that point whether you're white black or whatever it is it doesn't matter what category you're going to be put in that doesn't doesn't i like the movie very much i wanted a little more for the uh, i'm sorry what was his first name loving's first name richard loving. richard richard right i'm sorry i forgot to write that down that's 25 and a half movies <laughs> and he was so taciturn and I think that they portrayed him absolutely accurately, but I wanted to learn more from him. And because of the, his true nature and they were being faithful to who he was, it was hard to extract that out of him. He was not communicative, at least verbally, in many ways. The other, and these are, this is nitpicking, this is a fine, good movie that needs to be seen and deserves to be seen. Um, but I wanted a little more of how this relationship evolved as the only white man in the rural South uh, uh, integrating himself into the African-American community and falling so deeply in love with an African-American woman and she with him. I wanted to know how that social circumstance evolved. That's all. It's a small thing. Otherwise, yes, I did expect it to turn into a courtroom drama, and it didn't. You know, I was particularly attuned to that criticism because we had spoken about Loving briefly before I saw it. And I think that the movie does, maybe maybe because I was paying attention to it, I thought it was particu- it, it did enough to satisfy my curiosity about how he uh, 
how he came to belong to this community. I think there's some hint drop that, you know, his he is of quite a diverse kind of ethnic background and that he has some Native American in him. He has some African American in him. He looks white and I think that's the, you know, the blonde. majority of his hair. And right. And he has quite bl- blonde hair. hair. And but there's also some indication that his, you know, his father uh either grew up in this community in which he lives or he has some kind of lineage and but but you're right there is i mean to the naked eye yes there are some serious questions about how could this white man have become so integrated into this almost entirely black they were community comfortable with him as he was with them but there is tension in yes, that in there, that community now there there's plenty one speech where they finally did say to him Here's where it's different for you than us just because of the color. But I also Here's think that the, I mean, there's some question as to whether the wife's family or some African-American friend turned in, you know, what the police know right. that Richard and Mildred had gotten married because of their, their resentment of him feeling that he was inevitably going to bring down law enforcement upon the community. And so might as well get rid of him. But I felt like there were enough kind of hints throughout. Now, maybe not, maybe, maybe they weren't uh, clear enough, but I didn't find myself asking so much why is he here as marveling at at how, you know, what the movie right. showed, how he was integrated in. Um, I, w- I want to say you are listening to Deep Focus on WNHH LP 103.5 FM. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and we are talking with Arnold Gorlick of Madison Arts Cinemas about the Toronto International Film Festival. Now, I want to spend one more minute on movies, Arnold, and that is not on movies that you were struck by in a positive way uh, or it doesn't have to be a negative way, but what is a movie that really surprised you at this year's Toronto oh, Fest? Oh, the one that surprised me the most. Could uh, be positive or negative way. I'm interested in hearing disappointments, but when you went in and it really uh, gave you something counter to what you were expecting. L. <laughs> I, think we, I think we walked on, out on that together. <laughs> we did, although I do remain intrigued by this is Paul Verhoeven's latest movie starring right. Isabel Huppert as a a video game CEO. She's the, you know the right. head of some video game company, and this movie opens with a bang, right? And, oh, it does. No, oh, well, no pun intended. Pun. Oh boy! <laughs> but it opens with a, a very striking, and you know it was a, a scene that I actually I'm, I feel bad about this to this day. I was laughing as we heard what was happening because we see a cat. A cat is looking with its, you know, big blank eyes and we hear uh, something sexual happening off screen. And the look of the cat juxtaposed with the, you know, the the vocal nature of the sexual act I thought was humorous. And then it's I a realized, violent home invasion and it then, opens with a rape. And then I realized, <laughs> all, you know, about 30 seconds in, oh boy, this is not something that I should be laughing at. But I think Fairhoven is definitely, you know, he's deliberately trying to present uh a bizarrely calm face to the most outrageous and, and painful of situations. That's probably what let us out of there. It was a strange movie, but so L was counter to well, expectations. Well, the moment when in her office, when she was trying to identify who might be her attacker and the manner in which she did it, it didn't have credibility to me and her, her nonchalance after this uh, didn't have credibility for me. It could fascinate. Maybe we can, if we stayed to the end, we would have learned why, but my collaborator in the Sunday Cinema Club said, you know, I happened to doze off because I was tired, not because I was bored. It opened up with a rape. I woke up. There was a recapitulation of the rape. I fell asleep. I woke up. There was every time. 
There were probably, so, we, we were there for 45 minutes and there were probably three recapitulations of the rape. Right, so, so, so was, although they each played out in a slightly different way, yes, which did. I appreciate, right? They, these are become more revenge fantasies. And, and for it's her a shame we progress. never stayed to find yeah. out who did it. Right. Because there were a series of characters who were possible. So one uh, to, to keep your eye out on. Um, is there... Well, let, let me. Th- I want to throw one big disappointment out there, and then maybe you can offer uh, another one. But one is American Pastoral. I'm not sure if you I, saw this. this. Is you and no, McGregor's? I, I, I stayed away from it as I started to understand in advance that uh, it didn't work like Indignation it, it, did. Yes, I mean, especially coming off of the relatively low budget but quite successful adaptation of the Philip Roth novel Indignation by James Seamus. Here we have you and McGregor's directorial debut. Uh, adapting the 1997 Philip Roth novel that is, if not unadaptable, it is certainly one that is ambitious in scope, one that has a lot of meta-commentary, one that has a narrator who is reflecting upon and kind of going into the memories of different characters, and the different layers of narrative are a very important part of the book. Here in the movie, we get a pretty straightforward portrayal of a character uh, kind of an all-American, wholesome, you know, Swede Lavav, the integrated Jewish guy, you know, the triathlete from uh, New Jersey, whose life unravels because of a petulant counterculture. And the movie doesn't delve much deeper than that. I mean, we have a daughter who goes off into something like the Weather Underground, and she causes a lot of mayhem and then goes into hiding. And the movie's uh, the the commentary that the movie offers feels nothing deeper than we should respect authority <laughs> and American culture and politics was a lot, you know, better and more stable before people started questioning authority. And I don't know if that was the intention of the filmmaker. I think that everything is played a little too straight. Uh, the smiles are a little too loud, the music a little too cloying that it was difficult to get past the artifice of it, but it seemed completely out of touch with, <laughs> with the current, you know, the moment of, you know, frustration with uh, that clash between people who define this is what America is and people saying I've been excluded from America for too long and this is what I think America is. So it, it couldn't, couldn't quite get that balance. So American Pastoral was a bit of a dud. On the positive side, one that took me by complete surprise because I'm not a fan. I don't dislike him. I like many movies that Rob Reiner has done when Harry met Sally, Princess Bride and so on. But I can name a number of them as well that I said, why am I here? And that is the movie LBJ that he directed, oddly enough, the same period of time that the movie Jackie is set in. Uh, Woody Harrelson plays LBJ, and he's great. He's great. Uh, the standout in it was Jennifer Jason Lee as Lady Bird Johnson. I didn't even feel like I was watching Jennifer Jason Lee. Um, also stars uh, Richard Jenkins, who's great in whatever he does, as Richard Russell, the senator from Georgia. Um, this is just about the transition. What happened leading up to the nomination of John F. Kennedy, the tension between LBJ and uh, Robert F. Kennedy, what happened in the immediate aftermath of the assassination, the decisions that had to be made, what had to be sensitively addressed, yet the country had to be run without a break for a moment. And he was juggling all these things. It showed LBJ for who he was, his power, his persuasiveness, his coarseness, and... uh, I walked away from that surprised what a really wonderful movie that is. You know, LBJ has received quite a bit of kind of pop cultural attention recently from, remember his, Tom Wilkinson's turn as LBJ, controversial in Selma, in which he is the uh, kind of counter to Martin Luther King, in which he is a pragmatist, but also trying to uh, limit, you know, how far the civil rights movement should 
uh, push how far they should progress under his term. You also have uh, LBJ in in this movie. I maybe this isn't quite uh, recent, but I, I rewatched JFK recently, the Oliver Stone movie, because thinking about his new release of Snowden and and in each of these movies, LBJ comes off uh, as a you know a very specifically motivated character. We usually get one shade of LBJ in the movies that I've referenced thus far. It sounds this had like texture. it sounds this like had, Rob Reiner's movie gave it. And you know, I really love the movie Selma for everything that mm-hmm. I got right. Give it an eighty-five or something like that. My small disappointment with it was that I didn't think she captured LBJ exactly correctly. He was too benign a character in the movie. This, whatever he did, he was never benign. And uh, and so that's all. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm glad. You know, always it's always good to to go up and respond well to a movie, right? I mean, we're not looking to hate a movie as no. fun as it is to maybe articulate why you don't like it. But you know, we love movies. We want to like them, and it's good when one meets that expectations. But the Toronto Fest is not just about the movies, even though everything kind of pivots around them. It is also an opportunity for you, as someone who works in the movie industry, to network to reconnect with uh important people in your business life but also just to you know to to meet new faces to go out to dinners tell me about some of the people that you spent the festival with who who were you seeing movies with and talking with outside of the movies besides yours truly uh obviously you met him my film buyer rob lewinsky doesn't just buy for small theaters he buys for smaller independently owned chains as well as well so they're not just single standing uh, things. I spent a lot of time with him. We have, beyond a business relationship, a very close tie. Uh, there's a, my life would be different without him, I could tell you, not just my working life. Uh, with him are the colleagues, uh, my collaborator in the Sunday Cinema Club, Andy Mencher, other film buyers. We went to um, gala screenings that we were invited to. I was... <sighs> Privilege of Fox Searchlight invited uh, me and my film buyer to uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, the cast party for Birth of a Nation. I had already seen it two months before at a screening in New York, so I didn't have to go to the screening. But that was fun being there and talking with all the people. We also went to the uh, red carpet premiere of um, Trespass Against Us with Michael Fassbender and the frenzy of people as he was there signing autographs was screaming michael 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 afterwards we got invited to an intimate cocktail party with the cast of uh trespass against us which is a movie i recognize how well acted it was but a movie that um i couldn't connect with well even though it's very and one of my favorite actors of all time is in it brendan gleason but um uh other film buyers uh, people that I meet once a year, and of course, I love my reunions every year with that extraordinary manager of uh, managing director of the Scotia Bank uh, uh, Cinemas, uh, Cineplex uh, Cinemas, Rafik, uh, who I introduce you there, who is for me as much a part of that festival as the festival itself. I should say that was one of the funnest moments of the festival for me, walking into the Scotia Bank Theater, which was probably a, a 15 or 16 screen uh, kind of multiplex that most of the business and industry screenings took place at. And on our very first day, even before the screening started, we took the, I don't know if the escalator was working then. I, no. We may have walked up the steps, but we, we walked into this theater that, you know, a couple 
100,000 people probably walking through over the course of the festival between regular audience members and press and industry. And here comes the owner, Rafiq, with his arms wide open. And he uh, says, the Arnold, manager. Yeah. Uh, the manager, Rafiq, and he says, Arnold, how have you been? You know, it's, that was a, a true testament to the connections that you're able to make with the people up there. Well, I take inspiration from him. He's, uh, I watch how he operates that theater. It's complex with dozens of employees, very complex, much bigger operation than mine and how, how, uh, humanely he treats the people and how he motivates them and how calm he is in the face of duress and how helpful he's an extraordinary guy. As someone who you know, runs his own movie theater, I know you're particularly aware of the physical surroundings, you know, environment in which a movie is presented. Now the Toronto film festival itself takes place across i think something like 28 different screens is what i saw probably seven or eight or nine different movie theaters but most of the press and industry screens took place at Scotiabank and a uh kind of music call kind of movie palace called the princess of wales theater and i wonder as someone who is so sensitive to the theater itself as an important part of a movie going experience what did you think of the movie theaters that we went to um, during the Toronto Fest, how did they strike you? I, not just you know in comparison to your own, but are these you know top-notch places to watch movies? What is it that you want to you know th- that you take away from your movie-going experience at these that you want to either bring to or make sure to avoid at Madison? The biggest red carpet screenings took place at the Princess of Wales because it's such a big theater, and it's an old-fashioned theater which is beautiful inside with balconies, but it has old-fashioned seats. I mean really old-fashioned seats, which are not that comfortable, and your knees are close to the seat back in front of you. And given the size of the theater, the screen is relatively small compared to when we're immersed in this every screen at the Scotiabank. Nevertheless, there was always an excitement about going to the Princess of Wales because that was always a big screening, and that was the theater which held the most people. Not that those screenings didn't repeat back at the Scotiabank or at the TIFF light box where we saw L, which is essentially a screening room. Right. That was kind of an overflow space right, right. where they set up additional screenings for. Because that was, well, I, I, I wanted to make sure to ask you about your experience this year versus last year. And one of the things that I heard a lot of press and industry people grumbling about was how difficult it was to see all of the movies that you needed to see. Now, I know that with 290 plus movies playing, you're not going to see them all. But it seemed to be that at this year's fest, there was a lot of kind of simultaneous programming of movies that a lot of people attending thought were very important for them to see. And so there was always a grumble about if I miss the first screening of Loving or Manchester by the Sea, I'm not going to be able to see it again until, you know, it wasn't just eight that. Days later. Sometimes uh, they were sparse, the screening. So, for example, The Promise took, took place, a movie I'm so sorry I missed uh, with Oscar Isaac um, uh, that I wanted to see very badly. It was front-loaded. Now, keep in mind, there are public screenings, there are press and industry screenings. They don't intersect. We can attend public screenings, but we then have to make arrangements, go an hour in advance, get a ticket to go to it, unless we know the distributor and he can just put tickets, he or she can put tickets in our hands, uh, or you go on a rush line. If it doesn't sell out, you could wait on it. Now, it's not that I see that as beneath me, but we are press and industry. We're the ones who mediate these movies being shown. And to increase the number of public screenings at the express 
at the expense of press and industry was bothersome to me and, and a lot of others. So they front-loaded it. You had to make tragic choices in the beginning, and then it didn't repeat itself later because, as you know, there's a grid that we work from. And I don't worry so much if we miss a movie. We'll see it at another time when it doesn't conflict and we then, then can make our choices. Usually I can see everything I want to see. This wasn't the case this year, so a lot of people were grumbling about that, that they seem to increase the public screenings and diminish the press and industry screenings. There's money in those public screenings. They're paying $55 a ticket, I think. Yes, and they you know, it used to be a flat rate of $25 per ticket, but as of this year, Toronto, the Toronto Film Festival has decided to uh, kind of scale the ticket prices based on the perceived level of demand, which seems like a pretty transparent cash grab. Have, but I mean, it's an... It's big a well, complex operation to run. It's expensive to run. It costs millions of dollars to oh, run. Yeah. They have 3,200 volunteers during that 10-day period and working mo- on that. I'd and say, they're highly motivated. Yeah, I'd say my, you know, overall, my experience with the volunteers, very positive. I mean, I wonder any other points of comparison between this year and last year that come to mind, either the way that, you know, your schedule, your, I don't know, what you ate during it, how you were able to walk between theaters, but also the quality of the movies. Did they seem uh, on par with... You know, previous I thought there was festivals. a better selection last year, but you can't predict what's coming out and so on. I just thought there are many more important movies last year. I can't remember. I remember Brooklyn. Uh, Spotlight and Room. Spotlight, or... Room, uh, where there it was just one great movie after another. I was going, wow, will this never stop? And I didn't feel that this year. I mean, I, hate, I went to see it just because it was my last day. It was the last showing. And I went to see The Magnificent Seven, which is just stupid. I'm sorry. <laughs> I missed that to be one. Made. But yeah, <laughs> I had a feeling that that may be the case, but that's. But I want to get my money's worth. So. Yeah. Um, well, we're we're quickly approaching the end of the show, but I want to make sure to get and you know for I know I promised to play an interview with Rob, but I will direct listeners to listen to that on DeepFocusRadio.com if you're interested in hearing my conversation with Arnold's and you know, many other movie theaters film buyer Rob Lewinsky. But Arnold, uh, before we end our conversation, I want to make sure to ask you about any. Uh, kind of any lessons or takeaways that you are bringing with you from the Toronto International Film Festival this year, either related to a particular movie or your experience at the fest. And I'll, and I'll give you one example of mine, if that is a bit of an abstract question. And one is that The Birth of a Nation helped me, and this is Nate Parker's new movie about the Nat Turner-led slave rebellion in 1831 in Virginia. The Birth of a Nation helped me come to terms a bit with how a movie, the kind of conversation around a movie can be as interesting as the movie itself. And sometimes it's it's okay for that to be the case. This is a mediocre, uneven, but affecting biopic that's rendered pretty extraordinary by the subject of the, of the story that it tells and rendered quite unsavory by the uh, history of the director who's been accused of, or who was accused of raping a woman while he was a college student at Penn State. He was acquitted. And of course, the uh, the victim, the alleged victim, committed suicide a few years later. I think that even though those conversations about the kind of extra textual stuff around the movie tend to distract from the movie itself, and it's important to talk about what happens on the screen, I still appreciate that this movie is out there and gaining attention for its confrontation of Hollywood's history with race relations, as well as the kind of sordid nature of um, you know, silencing women who have experienced sexual abuse on campus. It's not a great movie, but I so appreciate the conversations happening around there it. There are important lessons in it. Yeah. Uh, excuse me, that's for sure. Um, 
it wasn't 12 years a slave. It's unfair. He has a very high bar, bar to pass. He'll run into trouble. I don't think it's, it's earned because it is essentially a fictionalized version. We don't fully know what happened uh, with Nat Turner. All we know is what he allegedly told his racist white lawyer who then repeated what he thought he heard or through the prism of his worldview. And, uh, but that having been said, it doesn't bother me because there's authenticity in it. I mean, we have to look what it meant to be a slave and it lets you know really what it meant to be a slave and to 12 years a slave in through other way, the other ways of doing it. Like I really didn't like the movie blindside. I didn't think it had much meaning. I didn't think it had much importance. I didn't even think those was a true story that was lacking authenticity. If the movie precious, which was complete fiction was more authentic to me and had more lessons in it than the movie blindside. So the fact that it's fiction, uh, doesn't matter, but he may be called to task. How do you know this? How do you know that? William Styron was accused of the same thing when he wrote the confessions of Nat Turner. Many people were critical, but since then the, uh, uh, African-American intellectuals have been more forgiving of William Styron. And on this level, maybe so with Nate Parker. Are there any other kind of high level lessons that you're, or takeaways from the festival for you, either about how you're running the theater or about just the movies that you saw? I have a real, it's very difficult uh, booking the theater with only two screens. I need four or five. I have to make horrible, tragic choices, movies I love that I have to pass on or distributor that I really want to reward or not just reward. They're important to me and I have to choose among them and it could get punitive sometimes to me, you know, and I do my best and that's what's, that's what's hard. And now I saw so many movies and it's feast of famine. They come out all at once and then there's a long period of nothing and I have to pass or open something later, which is hard. Well, Arnold, it's such a pleasure as always to have you. you on the show. Thank you for coming by. Tell me, uh, what are you playing at Madison Art Cinemas right now? And where can pe- where where is the theater? Where can people go and find it? It's at 761 Boston Post Road, right in the center of Madison, across the street from R.J. Julia Booksellers. Uh, we are playing uh, The Beatles eight days a week, the touring years. It is remastered. It is brilliant. There's never before seen footage. And a bonus at the end of the movie of a remastered half hour of the uh, their concert at Chase Stadium, uh, which everybody just stays at. We don't even bring up the house lights. It's just wonderful. Whether you're a Beatle fan or not, to hearken, it brought back memories that I had were deeply buried. Uh, the other side is Snowden, which it is what it is, and uh, it's actually not performing well, though it's a worthy movie to see and to approach. And then soon we'll get a man called Ova, I mentioned, and uh, Denial, which is one of the movies I really liked with Rachel Wise and Tom Wilkinson about the Holocaust denier trial in Great Britain. Arnold, as always, thank you so much. We'll talk with you uh, sooner than next year, but I look forward to the next. Thank you, Sally. It was great being with you. I really Ah. enjoyed your company and your feedback. And I watched your wide eyes. This is... You warned me that this was going to be unlike any other business business trip that I've taken. This so is my favorite week of the favorite. year, or eight days of the year. It's a special one. Thank uh, you. You can find an archive of all previous episodes of Deep Focus on deepfocusradio.com, where we'll also link to some of the movies we talked about in today's show. Coming up next is Elisa's Cocktail Hour, but first, let's hear a little bit of music from whatever's on the playlist.